This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by Springer Nature. It's the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. And in this podcast, Genetics and Medicine is happy to commemorate the inaugural Medical Genetics Awareness Week, April 2 through 6, celebrating the contributions of the entire medical genetics team to patient care and public health. I'm Cynthia Graber. More than a decade ago, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the Health Resources and Services Administration asked a question. It was posed at the opening of a medical geneticist workforce report. Will the U.S. have sufficient numbers of qualified health professionals to provide for the future genetic health care and service needs of the population? Since then, the needs in the field have only grown. And so a team of researchers surveyed the field to find out where we are today. Michael Watson is the executive director of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and the project director of the National Coordinating Center. The American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics represents the board-certified medical geneticists in the United States that includes clinical geneticists, laboratory geneticists uh, at the doctoral level. We hear from them frequently because, you know, we are the professional organization that represents them, that one of their greatest needs is a larger workforce to meet the demands of their growing patient referral rates. You know, it was clear from what we were hearing, both from the providers out there as well as from others looking down on our field as to how it was going to meet the demands, that we had a serious problem developing and documenting the nature of it is the first step in really figuring out what do you do to to repair the problem. Deborah Mays is the evaluation consultant to ACMG, working on the National Coordinating Center for the seven regional U.S. genetic networks. So altogether, a total of 924 genetic professionals participated in the survey, and we were really happy that It was representative of people across the country. We had genetic professionals respond from every region of the U.S. One of the first issues the survey addressed was, how do medical genetic professionals spend their time? They spend a proportion of their time in direct patient care. At least in 2007, I think it was about 45% of their time in direct patient care. And in the current survey, I'm trying to remember the number, it was closer to 55% spent in patient care. So they spend also a fair bit of their time in education of medical students and trainee residents and other trainees in medical centers and in administration and research. How do the answers demonstrate an increase in their workload? Geneticists reported that in 2015, they saw 10.2 new patients, and these are non-emergency patients per week. And compared to the previous decade, geneticists reported six. So we went from six new patient visits per week to 10.2. And then in terms of follow-up appointments, it went up from four to 7.8. So there's really an increased load and it's most noticeable among people in private practice and across settings, children's hospitals, university hospitals, as well as in clinics. So it's across the board, increased um, workload. How about wait time? How big a change is that from a decade ago? And how big a problem is this? Well, it is a growing problem. uh, And it does track with sort of this expanded utility of genetic services. So for instance, in the area of newborn screening, about 20,000 infants every year identified with a potential or at risk for a genetic disorder that's treatable. And their emergency kind of patients when first identified as newborns 
what we report in the paper really is is the data on non-emergency appointments, which you can see getting longer and longer wait times. And much of that is driven by the fact that these emergency type patients from things like newborn screening get in relatively promptly to see the clinical geneticists, but it then grows the non-emergency patient wait time significantly. So between the decades, we now see that 30% of geneticists reported that there's a wait time of more than three months in their practice compared to a decade earlier where it was really 10.9%. So it's rounded up in the table to 11%, but 30% report three months or more. And when you look across settings, children's hospital respondents reported that they had the longest wait times for new patient non-emergency appointments. Another significant issue seems to be job vacancies. Yeah, we found that close to half of the respondents reported that their organization had job vacancies. And then about 6% said they didn't know whether they did or not. So um, it's really quite a significant finding. At that point, um, the respondents who did know about their job vacancies said there were more than 100 open positions for medical geneticists and 200 for genetic counselors. And these vacancies were most pronounced in the center of the country, the Heartland and Mountain State regions. Based on this survey, who do the respondents perceive is least likely to have access to genetic services? It's people in rural areas because the distance to travel to um, access this specialty care is great. We found that Native American populations, non-English speakers, and uninsured individuals were identified as not accessing genetic services. Yeah, I think if you look at the distribution of these providers over the country, there's a couple of sort of striking things. They tend to be in urban centers where academic medical centers are. But if you just look across the country, once you move west of the Mississippi River, there's on average, uh, there at least in the last surveys, one to two clinical geneticists per state until you get all the way out to the coast. Some states don't even have a board-certified clinical geneticist identified within their state and access their services from other states. That's, for instance, Wyoming generally draws much of its medical genetic services from Colorado. And so what types of recommendations do you make in the report? Certainly, there's the issue of getting the appropriate tests and results and understanding those results in a timely manner. There's the issue of improved insurance and reimbursement for these services. And so a couple of of strategies have been to, you know, unify medical records, to increase autonomy of genetic counselors, and certainly to make sure that pediatricians and primary care providers know when and how to access genetic specialists as they need them. We've also been ramping up our our sort of training of people in technologies that allow them to to reach out much uh, further from their local practice services like telemedicine, telegenetic services that allow the provider to stay within their local academic institution, yet counsel or uh, work with patients at a distance through centers within the parts of the state where they reside. 
it's really been increasing over the last couple of years uh, in that we're doing training programs now for genetic counselors and for geneticists uh, in the use of this technology, what works, what doesn't work, uh, and those sorts of things to give them you know, less travel time to see patients who are distant and convert that into distance care. Overall, what do you think is the main takeaway from the survey? Well, for me, it's sort of a two-part problem. It certainly identifies the deficiency in the workforce. It's very difficult for us to predict what the long-term need is going to be. We have some data from the United Kingdom, for instance, that says for a general for a population, one needs about one clinical geneticist per. 200 to 250,000 people in a population. In the United States, back in 2007, we were in the neighborhood of one per 650,000. I think it's a little lower now, maybe one per 550,000, but we're sitting in the neighborhood of a 50% deficiency in the workforce. Uh, so it's a significant problem, and you know we're looking at ways to address it. There are lots of different mechanisms that can be employed to increase a workforce, uh, incentives for people to move into that form of training and residency programs, improvements in salary, and that's already taking place as the number of job openings out there reflects the demand for these kinds of providers, and that certainly improves you know, the salary that they might make in practice. So some of these pieces are coming together, and we hope will, over time, improve the size of the workforce. But it is a workforce that is also aging out. There are people who came into genetics when I did quite a long time ago who are beginning to retire, but we're going to really have to ramp it up to meet the demands of those who are moving out of practice. And to that point, we found in this survey that a quarter of the geneticists plan to retire in the next five years. So just replacing those retirees is one challenge for the workforce. And I think the other finding from this survey that's important to emphasize is that 62% of the geneticists said their practices were nearly full, and another 9% said they are full and cannot accept any more patients. So in light of that glass being almost 70% full, we really need to explore how we increase and attract people into the field of genetics. Genetics and Medicine is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is published by Springer Nature. I'm Cynthia Graber.